0: And so this uh, this month we're looking at a we're, we're looking at four kind of four angles of looking at the psalms. Last month we looked at the picture of the godly man and his flourishing, and this month we're focusing on Christ. Now, in some sense, we could say all the psalms are about Christ, but there's some psalms that that really just are much more explicit. We might say it's like right on the surface; you don't have to dig that far. And the psalm that we're going to look at today is definitely one of those psalms. It is, it is Psalm 22, and there we see the suffering and the glory of Christ, and so that's what we'll consider together this morning. So let's listen to God's holy and inspired word. Psalm 22, for the director of music to the tune of The Doe of the Morning, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, and I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the, whole, the one Israel praises. And you, our ancestors, put their trust. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you, they cried out and were saved. And you, they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It is melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of, the earth, of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lion. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name. To my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, we give you praise that you have revealed to us the secrets of the universe, the secrets of life, and you have put them in your words that we might have them. And O Lord, we pray that even as we look at them, that you would speak to us, that you would make these things come alive to our hearts and minds, that we would see in ever. A greater measure, the glory, the wonder, the treasure that is our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, it's in his name we pray. Amen. So, Fyodor Dostoevsky was born into a life of privilege. He was part of the Russian nobility, and he had all kinds of privileges that that entitled him to, and he also used it to some good effect. He became a writer. And he was on his way to developing fame as a writer. But one thing on his heart was the fact that not everybody had shared that privilege. There were the people in his land who were virtually slaves, often not counted as human, seen as expendable. And that was the serfs in the land of Russia. And so he and a group of other nobles plotted to overthrow the government and to release the serfs and give them liberty. But on April 23rd, 1849, the secret police of the Tsar, or the king of Russia, arrested him and his fellow conspirators. He was sentenced to death by firing squad. And he he was brought out with all the people who had been part of the conspiracy, and they counted one, they counted two, and then three never came. And he was actually pardoned along with everyone else. But he still had to get a, have a punishment. The Tsar decided that he would be, show them mercy. And he sentenced them only to four years of hard labor in Serbia. Or in not Serbia, Siberia. And, and also to be, serve as an inde, in, for an indefinite period as a private in the army, which was a very difficult life. And so Fyodor Dostoevsky made his way to the prison camp on the other side of Russia, a long trip. With only one possession besides the clothes on his back. And that was a New Testament. And so he went to this camp and he found a place that he called defiled and degraded. The place was a, a, was a terrible place to, to live. It was a place where they would just simply sleep on the floor. It was, they were covered with insects. And they, they worked hard day and night. But maybe worst of all was the fact that the very ones for whom he had suffered, the serfs who were there in that prison camp, hated him because he was nobility. And they hated the nobility for what they had done to them. And so there he was, alone. There he was, suffering, working day and night, and he was on the edge of a breakdown. But two things happened. One is, one day he had a recollection of a peasant named Mari that was in his village when he was a young boy. A wolf had come into the town and he was, and Fyodor was scared, and this peasant Mari came to him and dealt with him like a mother, comforting him, speaking to him, telling them that God would take care of him, and that everything would be all right and That moved him deeply. The second thing is that he began to read the New Testament, and there he encountered the Christ that he had, he had met as a child, and he found in Christ the one who had entered into his suffering. He found, in the words of one of his biographers, Christobo Krusin, the suffering servant who chose to empty himself of royal privilege to live among the earthly poor, whose acceptance of God's will led him to a Roman cross where he sacrificed his life for the sins of the world. So there in the New Testament, he found the Christ who, who could identify With his suffering. And that changed him. And he began to have hope. And he began to love those around him. And that's what this passage can do for us as well. Wherever we are. Whatever we have suffered. Our suffering or will suffering. Here we find the Christ. Who has entered into our suffering. And has come right alongside us. And so that we can find in the son of God. Someone who can sympathize with us. And so that's what I want us to see here, in two parts, the profound suffering of the glorious King and the marvelous exaltation of the glorious King. This passage describes for us profound suffering and anguish of soul. It describes the suffering in various ways. It describes first the physical suffering, which we can see as extreme exhaustion, fatigue, hunger, and thirst. Consider what it says in verses 14 and 15. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. it is melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. And so you see there that he was experiencing uh, a lack of the things that he needed, sleep, food, drink. But then also he's experiencing attacks from people. It says in verse 16, Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. And so he's suffering physically from attacks from these dogs, these wild beasts, as he described them, who are attacking him mercilessly. And then he's stripped of the things that he possesses. Look at verse 18. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots from my garments. And so you see that there he's even taken the things that would just give him basic clothing. Now, David spoke this psalm, no doubt, to some degree concerning himself. But when he was writing this psalm, as with many others, he was writing something that was much more true of his greater son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And rarely does it become so clear that that is the case. And here you see in the very specifics of what we have, it calls attention, it calls us directly to the suffering of, of Christ. Where Christ, thirsty, said, I thirst. One of his seven words on the cross. Where he had his hands and his feet pierced and nailed to the cross. Where in the front, as he was suffering there on the cross, the people took his clothes and they cast lots for them. Exactly as it is described in this passage. And so we see here the, the suffering, the physical suffering of Christ. But you know, a lot of times we can bear pain when we have some real support, encouragement, and love. But that's just what was stripped from this the psalmist, and it's what was stripped from our Lord Jesus. Listen to what how it describes his alienation from people, in this his suffering as alienation from people in this passage, verse six. But I am a worm and not a man scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. And so not only is he experiencing suffering in the body, but he's experiencing the alienation from people. And not only alienation, but outright contempt from people. And once again, we can see that this is this is, fits exactly with what we find at the scene of the cross, where his close, one of his closest companions, Judas, betrayed him. Where his, his other close companions, the apostles, fled from him in his hour of greatest need. And all those around him made fun of him and mocked him. And there he was, alone on the cross, alienated from everyone around him. You think of a time of being alone. Think of being on the cross and the contempt just swirling around you. That is the suffering that is described in this passage. But beyond all that, suffering is described as alienation from God himself. And in the opening verses, we have this this statement where he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's a phrase that you probably heard before. But not not because of this psalm but because it's precisely the very words that Jesus said on the cross as he experienced the wrath of God. At three in the afternoon, he repeated this very phrase, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was as if he was calling attention to this very psalm, saying, I am now doing what is described in this very psalm. This was the trouble that Jesus had. You know, many of the martyrs, have gone to their death singing praises to God and joy in a miraculous way. Jesus went with deep sorrow. Why? Because he didn't just face physical death. He faced alienation from the Father and God's forsaking of him. him. And so as he thought about it, he said, My soul is troubled in John 12. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I come to this hour. I see Jesus himself went to the cross. He struggled inwardly. He faced the, the fear. He faced the anxiety of struggle and alienation from God. Jesus told his disciples over and over again that he was going to experience suffering. But they didn't understand it. And even at, at Peter even rebuked Jesus and said, You're wrong. There's none of this stuff's gonna happen to you. But Jesus had to teach them what the Bible actually said about his suffering. And I wonder if he went to one of these places. And said, you remember what I said on the cross? He said, let's go back to Psalm 22. This is the suffering that I am going to suffer. And all the details showed that this is precisely what it's pointing to. And so what this tells us is that the glorious king, as glorious as he is, is also a companion in our suffering. He is a companion in our suffering. The son of God himself, the eternal king of glory, experienced these things on our behalf. And so what this means is that we can find help for experiencing physical suffering, for experiencing alienation from people, for experiencing alienation from God. We have someone who is a help who has walked through it. He's been there. He has experienced it. He's had that cry of anguish that we often have in our hearts, and he can come alongside us and help us. It's interesting, Timothy Keller makes a good observation on this in his excellent book, The Reason for God, which I highly recommend. And as he's talking about the problem of evil, he says, and suffering in this world, he says, you know, we may not know all the answers, but, but he says, one thing we now know based on what happens here is what the answer isn't. It can't, the answer can't be that God doesn't care, that God doesn't love us. It can't be that he's indifferent or detached from our suffering or our condition. Because he's entered right into it. He's put himself, as Keller says, on the hook. And you know, that's what's attracted so many to the Lord Jesus. Because they've seen in him someone who has felt our infirmities, our weakness, and our suffering. And that's the confession that Fyodor Dostoevsky made later when he said, you know, what moved him towards Christ? It was this consideration That when he was there, he was not alone, and he was not experiencing something that Christ himself had not experienced. So he said his confession was that there is nothing more beautiful, more profound, more sympathetic, more reasonable, more courageous, and more perfect than Christ. Because he found in him the one who came alongside him in the suffering, and much else as well. The life of Christ teaches us that we are often going to have to go through suffering. We follow in his steps. And oftentimes we have to take up our cross and and we have to suffer following in his pattern. But another thing that the the life of Christ teaches us is is that suffering doesn't last forever. And it's really astonishing here. You have this. Profound and and deep cry of anguish. And all of a sudden, at verse 22, it shifts to a song of praise and confidence and deliverance. Because suffering doesn't last forever for those who are in Christ. They may follow in his steps in suffering, but they also experience his glory. And we see a little bit of that in the life of Fyodor Dostoevsky. uh, As as one of Jesus' saints. Because he was in prison, it was hard, it was difficult, but his time there ended. And even when he got out, he still had this burning desire to write. And his brother sneaked him some, uh, some books so that he was able to continue uh, studying, even though he was forbidden to read them or publish, because the government was afraid of what he might write. But yet, a couple years later, by 1856, there was a new czar, a new king in Russia, and he gave, and he and he gave greater freedom to Fyodor Dostoevsky. He said he could publish. He restored him to his rights of nobility, and he made him an officer in the army instead of just a private. And he began working. And ten years later, he began publishing. What are some of the greatest classics of world literature? And recognized by everyone, Christian and non-Christian alike, such as *Crime and Punishment*, *The Idiot*, *The Brothers Karamazov*. And his reason for doing this was to show forth the glory of Christ. Our suffering doesn't last forever. It didn't last forever for Fyodor Dostoevsky. It doesn't last forever for his saints. It, does, it did not last forever for Jesus. And that's what this passage shows us, is that there's going to be a marvelous exaltation. The Messiah, the King, is going to suffer, but then there's going to be a marvelous exaltation. His cries of anguish would turn to praise. And so we see that he says, I will declare your name, verse 22, to my people. In the assembly I will praise you. The cries of anguish will turn into praise. And he calls everybody to lift up the Lord. And he does this, he says he would praise God because God would deliver him. That he would not leave him forever in suffering. He's going to lead him out. As it says in verse 24, For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of of the afflicted ones. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. So he would praise God because God would deliver him. But then secondly, he would praise God because his dominion would extend in space. That is, over the earth. Listen to verse 27. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn unto the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord. And he rules over the nations. What he's saying is that whereas you you have the king suffering, everybody seeming to be against him, all that's going to completely turn around. And the dominion of the Lord is going to extend throughout all the earth. And we've seen the fulfillment of that in our own day. We're here a long way from Jerusalem, my friends. And here we are praising the Lord. And we have people from all kinds of nations who've come. And are praising the Lord with us today. And they're doing it all over the world. This is the fulfillment of the glorification of the king. And then he would not only praise God because his dominion would extend in in space, but also in time. What he says is people are going to praise the Lord, but they're going to keep praising the Lord. Every generation, look at verse 30. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn. He has done it. And so we see that the Lord continues working in the generations. And, you know, some of us may have come to Christ later in our life without much Christian influence in our family. But a lot of us here had many people who spoke into our lives from our own family. And then other people who who came to us to proclaim it to the next generation. I can go back in my family line and see the work of the Lord for generations and generations and generations. The Lord's been working. He keeps he, every new generation. He keeps speaking. He keeps speaking, and, you know. And sometimes we get concerned about the future and about our youth, but we need to remember that the promise of the Lord, the King, is still working. He's working with the next generation. You heard it today in what you heard from Noel. You heard it. You heard it a few weeks ago, in what is happening with Rodrigo. And the Lord is going to keep doing that. And what we need to do is lean into that and be a part of what God is. What God is doing. Because this is precisely what Jesus said would happen. In Luke 24:46 through 47, he said, This is what is written. The Ma- Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And so it has been. And I want to focus in kind of in conclusion on that just that point of forgiveness of sins. Because a lot of what I've talked about here today is talked about the parallels between Christ's suffering and ours. And and there are. But in other way, in other ways, Christ's suffering is wholly unique. He is the God man, he was without sin, and he is our substitute. We have sinned, we deserve our sufferings. Christ does not sin. He does not he did not deserve his sufferings. He did it in our place. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we who are sinners might become the righteousness of God in him. And so wherever we are today, there's something within us that's telling us that what we've done is wrong because we've all sinned against the Lord. And even after we become Christians, we continue to sin against the Lord. And I was talking to someone, someone just very recently, and they just said, I do love the Lord, but man, I've done some serious sin. And that's, I'm sure every one of us who's been a Christian can say that. And, but even if you haven't been a Christian, then you see, hey, the Lord is, is te- telling me today, I have sin. I do deserve, actually, my suffering. But what we see is we can set that sin over against the suffering of Christ. We can take this passage and say, I do not have to experience that alienation from God and suffering for my sin that is eternal, because Christ has taken it for me. We need to learn to set our sin and our own unworthiness and our own shame over against the righteousness and suffering of Christ. That is the first lesson of our Christian faith, is that we live not out of what we have done, but what out of what Christ has done for us and which is counted as ours. If we want to stand before God in our own sin, we can. And it won't turn out well. But if we want to stand in Christ, all we have to do is say, yes, that's what we want. And if you've not done that, I encourage you to come talk to me after this service. And you can pray today and tell the Lord that's what you want to do. But for us who have done that, we need to keep going back to that again and again. That we, we look at what we've done and we say, you know, how can God be for me? Especially if we're experiencing suffering. And the answer is because we set our sin over against the suffering of Christ and say, I'm now counted righteous In him and all my sins are forgiven. That's what we mean we talk about justification by faith alone. That we're counted righteous, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done for us and suffered for us in his life and in his death. And now that's counted as ours, and we stand before God perfectly righteous because of what he has done. And now he begins to change us. That's sanctification. That's different from justification. But we never, and we don't, and in our sanctification, it's imperfect, and we fall, and we make, we go forward, but we make a step back. But that's not the basis on which we stand before God. It's all in the suffering of Christ, and that is the foundation. And without that foundation, we really have no hope. So we need to go back to this again and again. As often as we feel our suffering, our sin, go back to the sufferings of Christ and say, he has suffered enough, and so my sins are forgiven. And if God leads me through suffering for a little while, it's only to lead me to greater glory. Fyodor Dostoevsky knew that this was the case. He knew that that his foundation was in Christ and what he had done. And on his deathbed, he, he gathered his children around him, and he said, read to me Luke 15, which is the story of the prodigal son. And listen to the words that he said. He said, my children, never forget what you have just heard. Have absolute faith in God and never despair of His pardon. I love you dearly, but my love is nothing compared to the love of God. Even if you should commit some dreadful crime, never despair of God. You are His children. Humble yourselves before Him as before your Father. Implore His pardon, and He will rejoice over your repentance as the father rejoiced over that of the prodigal son. Amen.